Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are jazzed to bring you another great episode of Juanced. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page. Check it out when we record or watch all of our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwan's Podcast, as well as our website, www.juwan's.com. Also, make sure you are following us on Instagram, on Twitter. We are at Juwan's Podcast. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juwan's on all the podcast platforms. Leave us a good review, five stars, six stars, ten stars, whatever the top review is. There are rumors out there. Uh, I heard if you decode biblical texts, there is a clues that it might make a difference. I can decode a fortune cookie. <laughs> That'll work too. <laughs> How you doing, Dan? I'm good. How you doing, David? What's going on? Hey, everything is fine. It's a a motash, meaning a, the evening after Shabbat. So we're preparing for the new week here in Israel. All right. And uh, we'll see what's going on with the the pandemic. Yeah. How, how have you been holding up with that? We talk a lot about that on the show. Well, um, nothing is certain, you know, what I'm doing right now is I'm guiding a lot of uh, these advanced archaeological tours or advanced tours for tour guides. And they, I do have a lot of consolations in the last minute because people are getting into isolation or just getting sick, unfortunately, and they, or, you know, Sometimes they just they don't want to go out of their house because of the situation. So uh, it's a bit tough. Um, the government doesn't want to support um, any industry, as it seems now, and particularly not the people who work in the tourist industry. And uh, things are a bit complicated for a lot of people here in Israel today. We, we definitely sympathize. Uh, Benny and I here uh, talk about it a lot on the show. Benny is in full-time in the tourism world yeah uh, i don't know if, if if dan gave you any of my background beforehand i uh in my day job i'm director of sales for kenneth tours uh it is one of israel's leading providers of incoming tourism services and the whole concept of tourism and what's been happening here during the coronavirus uh called crisis pandemic whatever you know word you want to use uh is is definitely a central theme of what we deal with in our show and, and fortunately for us you know we're officially back in business uh there are no more travel restrictions if you are vaccinated according to israel's criteria so we have quite a lot of demand uh but but for this month and for this you know period january the beginning of february it's like a slow trickle because people are still you know just because you're allowed to come here now does not necessarily mean that there's a lot of people that want to so we will uh, see what goes on the next month or so. I feel that by mid-February, 
uh, things will be in a different uh, a different place, uh, and definitely by March. So there's a lot of a lot of demand, and uh, you know, I was reading a travel and leisure article. You know, travel and leisure magazine. Um, sounds generic, like the kind of thing you'd read on an it's, airplane. It's it's not a thing that you'd read <laughs> on an airplane. Have you heard of Condé Nast Traveler? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's in that same family. Anyways, they were making a point that this year, they did a, a survey, and this year 80% of people surveyed uh, said that they are planning a vacation in the next eight months, which is huge. Uh, to, to say that 80% of all people... Uh, all people, like in the of, world. Uh, no, in, in, in North America. Okay. Are planning a vacation. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a vacation abroad or a vacation right. to Israel, of course, but it means that people have. Uh, oh, they want to travel. Yeah. yeah. People want to travel. People <laughs> want to get, get out. out of the house. For sure. They want to go do something. So uh, that is good. And another good thing for the industry is that um, they are willing, in that same survey, uh, it was indicated that people are willing this year to spend a lot more than they would usually spend on a vacation. So if you're in the travel business, that those are, those are good <laughs> things to hear. Uh, but in any event, uh, we're doing these podcasts now, I think, on Saturday nights. They're working out uh, nicely for us. Hey, why not? Uh, and, you know, I, this Shabbat, I made a, uh, I, I tried to go and, and, and have some fun out with uh, with my kids in, in nature. And I it just dawned on me. This country is so small. It's like every single place was super packed. It is. It's it's super it packed. And and, and um, it's because it's been raining and very wintry. Right. You know, like everyone kind of had that urge to get out. Where, where do you live, by the way, David? Tel Aviv, central Tel Aviv. Yeah. So uh, you uh, you got kids? You got any anything at home going on? Uh, not a lot. Just uh, you know, went today out with my family to. You know, we, we because we all come from the Russian background, so we have this <laughs> habit of uh, picking mushrooms in the wood. Mm. Yeah, we didn't find a lot, but we did find a lot of jeeps. Yeah, jeeps. <laughs> uh, jeeps, people doing barbecues, people doing barbecues next to people with jeeps on oh, top of it's jeeps. Disgusting. It's it's everywhere you go and it's invasive. And the thing that 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 kind of came into my head when I was you know tri- <laughs> driving around trying to find a place to go with uh, with Eitan, my son was that people also don't want to travel very far from their home. No, they don't. And and you really, if you're into tourism, and and, and David, you know, you, you meet with groups and you travel around, so I know that you know this, but if you just work a little bit harder at getting out of your house, you can find places here that are very, very, you know, away from lots of hordes of people. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's not that hard to get to. It's just a little bit further out, just a little bit beyond... You know, Modi'in, you know, Ben Shemin sure. Forest. Just go, go a little bit beyond there. Come a little, little bit further south. You can, you can probably find it. But um, I just don't get it. It's like, why I, do you want to go to a park and sit on top of other people? Yeah, I, I you know, I never understood the. Uh, it's, it's like there's, there's that Israeli stereotype of like, I'm gonna go to nature with my off-road vehicle and just pollute and drive and run over, you know, wildflowers. Like, why? Why do you want to go to nature with your off-road vehicle? Like, either have your vehicle or go to nature. Like, why do you need to combine the two? Like, I, I don't know. Or, or these, this is, this, I never got the, uh, that typical Israeli family that picnics and they bring their entire like kitchen with them and they're cooking and making schnitzels and like French fries on the spot and like five types of barbecue. And like, you went to nature. Like, why do you need to cook like an entire gourmet meal for your entire extended family in nature? Like bring the food, eat it. Because like, you can. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. 
Anyways, anyways, uh, anyways, anyways. Dan, who are we talking to today in the podcast? So uh, we have with us David Gorevich, which I found out is the Russian version of Horvitz. Did you know that? I do now. You do now. Did you know that, David? Yeah, of course. We are of all course from the same family. Gorevich, <laughs> Gorevich. It's, it's not necessarily a Russian version. It's just, you know, there are different pronunciations okay. that were spread all around Eastern Europe. And originally, we are all from the same family. And as far as I know, that family originally... It traces back to the uh, expulsion from Spain. Oh, interesting. What would have been the name in the expulsion from Spain? That rhymed. I didn't mean it to. So I'm not sure really about the details. I just read it that somebody made a research um, that makes me kind of fake Ashkenazi. (laughs) But uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, it's all connected together. Interesting. Okay, so so if you didn't pick up from the clues at the beginning in the intro, uh, David is an archaeologist. You congratulations! You are the first archaeologist on our show who studies Ooh. Jerusalem and the Second Temple period. His doctoral dissertation focused on large water pools of Jerusalem and established the link between the Jewish pilgrimage to the ancient temple and the water management of the city. In 2014-15, David was awarded the Fulbright Fellowship and became a post doctoral scholar at Harvard University. In 2019, he published his co-edited volume, Exploring the Holy Land that explores the story of 19th century British Palestine Exploration Fund, uh, which is cool, and and we will also get into that today. The scientific society that sent the first archaeologists to the region. He also studies the first Jewish-Roman revolt, also something we definitely want to get into, a topic of his chapter in Sefer Yerushalayim, volume of Yad Ben-Tzvi, and is a member of the Archaeological Council of Israel. Um, David is a regular... uh, uh, tour guide and archaeologist and lecturer, and he's also uh, an expert on uh, Christianity in Israel today, which is actually coincidentally how the first time that we met and uh, worked in the Jerusalem municipality for a time in charge of the relations of the city and its Christian institutions. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for this kind introduction. What are you working on these days? What's your focus? So, um... Let's see. Uh, so first of all, I have uh, a few researches going on on the water systems of Jerusalem on different aqueducts. And uh, these uh, works are connected with uh, the, a report that I retrieved from the uh, archives in London mm-hmm. in the 19th century. They did a lot of works um, and they did not uh, publish them. And today, most of these findings are not available simply because the city developed very rapidly since then, and many of the archaeological sites were destroyed. So I'm working on that, and particularly I'm working on uh, writings of uh, reports, archaeological reports, and letters of a scholar and a fascinating person in the history of Jerusalem named Konrad Schick, a German scholar who settled in Jerusalem in 1846 as a, a missionary and uh, lived in Jerusalem until the rest of his life, 1901. And the interesting thing is that this week, on Thursday, we are celebrating 200 years of his birthday. Happy so, birthday. Uh, yeah, ma- mazel tov, uh, Herr Sheik. Yeah, exactly. So I'm also preparing a special tour for a tour guide that we are going to study about him and about his uh, a legacy and about uh, his neighbors that were also a kind of, a, I would say, 19th century elite European society in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and uh, on Friday, we are going to run this tour, uh, get to his house, former house. Today, it's uh, the place where the Swedish Theological Institute is located. And uh, we are going to celebrate with a cake and uh, <laughs> read a few of his uh, uh, articles, books, um, and uh, letters. Well, in, in honor of his being Swedish, are you going to bring like a lingonberry cake or something? Uh, well, so he Meatballs. was German. Oh, right German, now, German. Sorry, sorry. So like yeah, a strudel. Yeah, he was German. I can't hear who myself. got his education in a Switzerland. Yeah. And today his house is owned by the Swedish Theological Institute. This, oh, got it, got it. Okay, I found it. You know, that's, we mentioned it in your bio, um, and I guess that's that's your book that you wrote on, is the beginnings of, of basically modern archaeology in this area. How did you get into that? How did you get into studying that? Mm -hmm. So um, my book is called uh, Exploring the Holy Land. Um, actually, I have it here. So people who are following us on live stream can see it. It is. Yeah, hold it up to the screen. Oh, yeah. Well, I have mirror of the screen so people see it. Uh, oh, they can see it just fine. And we can actually, is it something people can order if they're interested? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They can find it online. It's also on, on Amazon. And uh, uh, the publisher is Equinox in Britain. So they can uh, order it from there. So we'll, we'll put the uh, the link on the show notes for those uh, listeners who are interested in ordering. It's called The Holy Land, right? Exploring, Exploring the, the Holy Land. Exploring the Holy Land. And and so how did you get into studying the studying of Israel, basically? So the story is that when you work on Jerusalem and they, you're trying to do archaeological research, um, you have a challenge. And the challenge is that the city is a living city. It means that people have houses there. There are roads there. There are different buildings that are built there. And let's say that you would like to explore a site like the Temple Mount, right? What do you do? You can't just go and dig there. So basically you are um, forced to go and explore the documents that were available to the scholars in the 19th century. Uh, the reports, uh, the things that they did, or uh, some published materials, some unpublished materials. And that's how you do archeology span in archives, digging into archives. That was title of my one of my articles so um th th that is this the story is that when you're trying to um, study sites that are not available that you cannot get access to them mm -hmm. uh, in order to a uh, kind of a, a i would say make the puzzle you need to put together different pieces the problem with um, this puzzle is that you have only about 30% of these pieces that are coming from um, modern archaeological works, mm. the works that were, did, uh, were done in the last decades. Um, and you need somehow to make more data available. So you need to go to these um, uh, materials that uh, provide you more information. And that's exactly what I did when I started to work on my dissertation, my PhD dissertation, um, which was about uh, 10 years ago. Studied uh, water pools, the big water pools of Jerusalem. And I found out that in order to get the information about uh, the site, I need to go to London or I need to Why go London? to the archives of the IAA and uh, to find the information from them. In, in, in that way, it's not so different, let's say, from a from some sort of an investigator working for, you know, 
a police investigator or, or somebody in law enforcement trying to, or, or a, you know, a, a lawyer trying to put together a case uh, using all kinds of documents and information that would be available to the public, but just in very obscure locations that they have to sort of piece together a case. How, let me ask you this. When you're doing that, how much, let's say, more or less effective is that at getting to truth than actually being at the site in that maybe maybe there's there's you know you're 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 choosing to search in certain places uh and and how much does your own bias of what you think that the, the site might uncover then drive you or lead you in your research towards a certain uh direction? so that's one million dollars question and uh, you're very precise in the fact that uh, archaeology is very similar to what the police detectives do Right. The only thing is that we study events that happened in the past. We studied the daily life of the past. We studied what people did in the past. A, while the police investigator studies something that happened just, you know, maybe a few hours ago, maybe a few years ago, right? right. So um, in that case, uh, the information available for archaeologists would usually be a less than what is available for the police investigator. You also don't have the benefit of being able to speak to, to an eyewitness. Excuse me? You also don't have the benefit of being able to speak to somebody who was actually there at the time. Okay, so here we get to another story. And the story is you do have a documents from people who were there, the witnesses. Right. Uh, and such kind of witnesses are historical documents. For instance, if you speak about uh, the Great Revolt, right? Jews against Romans. So you have a guy who participated in the in the war and they uh, switched sides Josephus and uh, eventually wrote a huge book yeah. about the events. His name was Joseph, son of Matitiao, and the world knows him as Flavius Josephus. Right. Now, he left us a very detailed account about the events. He, he was there, at least partly, right? And uh, he could say that um, uh, that person did one thing, the other person did the other thing, and so on. The question that you would ask yourself as historian is how much credible is that account? Right. And he was known so to exaggerate, wasn't stage. he? Hmm? He was known to exaggerate, uh, like in uh, retrospect. Some, in some cases, but uh, wait, wait a second. I just It's one example, sure, sure. right? But the next thing, as archaeologist, when you uh, do your work as archaeologist and you use historical sources, you would ask yourself how to correlate that historical source with the findings in the field okay. in case that they are credible. And that would be another layer on top of the historical research. Now, Josephus is one example, right? And of course, today we have a lot of debates, very heated debates, and perhaps uh, our listeners uh, hear something about it in the biblical archaeology, right? The biggest question that uh, I think shakes the world of uh, biblical scholarship for the 150 years is how much credible is our bestseller, the Bible. Right. How much the things that are uh, told us about King David, King Solomon, um, you know, Jews yeah. going out from, uh, not Jews, Israelites Israel going out from Egypt, from Egypt right? Mm -hmm. How much it is credible? 
And then when you answer that question, you can discuss whether archaeology helps you to understand that phenomena or that phenomena is much more, I would say, mythological right. or exaggerated or whatever it be. Where, where do you stand on that question? Because that's one that's always fascinated me. And, and if I understand correctly from you know, dabbling in this, this topic over the years is that there's, there's two schools of thought and one that's like, let's assume it happened. Now let's see what, what archeology span can help us prove. And the other one is like, no way it happened unless you find me archeology span that showed that it happened. But we're talking about events that happened, you know, 2,500, 3,000 years ago. So, I mean, what can you add about that? What can you say about that? Where do you personally stand on that divide? So I would uh, answer that a bit diplomatically because uh, it's not my period. Okay. I'm working on the second temple period. I would say that, um, you know, the problem with the biblical archaeology is that we have uh, much less historical sources than we would need to. Mm-hmm. And uh, for people like me that working on classics, on the classical periods, which is Hellenistic, Romans, we have a lot of sources. And uh, usually the abundance of sources allows us to understand much better uh, the events that happen and also to understand uh, certain findings. Now, the problem with uh, uh, the sources usually is that they speak about big events mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, War, that person, that king got to the throne, he killed that person. Um, you know, a, there was that a, a disaster and so on. Um, it is much more difficult to find ancient sources speaking about daily life right, or about technology. And uh, when we have such kind of sources, it is a, a really helpful tool in order to understand the core of archaeology. Core of archaeology is not um, the historical events. The core of archaeology is understanding the material culture, understanding the way how people lived in the ancient time. So, uh, for instance, we have a, an amazing book called De Architectura, written by a Roman engineer in the first century named Vitruvius. And uh, that is, I would say, for normal audience, for ordinary audience that is looking for, you know, to read history, that would be a completely boring book. Sure. Because that is a catalog that describes uh, how to build a temple, how to build a, a water pipe or a aqueduct, water aqueduct, yeah. uh, how to create a, um, a wall or whatever it be, right? And now... For me, as an archaeologist who is interested in understanding the findings in the field, that is a treasure. Because here we have a, a complete set of instructions. What would you do in order to create a, some kind of structure, in order to a, make the technology work? And without that source, my work would be much more difficult because I will have to make them talk by myself. Right. So uh, what... <clears throat> uh, at what point in history do we, is there like a cutoff point where you can say like, okay, up until this period of history, we have a lot of findings, a lot of things we can dig through, a lot of sources. And then from this kind of line onwards, it's really hard to find things. You know, it's really hard to find findings. Is there kind of, where, where is that timeline? So in, in general, I would say that in, as a 
earlier you go into your timeline, you would get less sources. Sure. And of course, at certain point, uh, the writing disappears simply because people did not invent literacy. And uh, that is the prehistory, meaning before you have the written history. Right. Pa- pause on that for a second. That's an amazing concept. And I was thinking about this as mm-hmm. you were answering this question, that there, there comes a point in time where the concept of writing doesn't exist. So, you know, there's something that one day doesn't. It isn't. It the, isn't a the thing. The concept of thinking about your society doesn't exist, right? Or, or being able to encapsulate a thought and then and then right. distribute that to a mass amount of people. The concept of I would want to do that maybe isn't there. And then how language then appears and then how that shapes the reality that we continue to exist in up until today and it widens. And, mm. and, and now we're getting into a digital age where just, you know, it's like the, the massive dissemination of information at a rapid pace. But it, it, it all ties together. And like how... David, how do you explain that? How do you how does how does archaeology explain like the appearance of writing in the land of anthropology, Israel? But true, but, but I'm but sure still you've got like, a good I, insights on it. Yeah, where, where where does like I I know when I travel uh, throughout the land of Israel, you can go to a place like uh, you know Dan. I'm sure you've been there, like Vadi Me'arot, okay, uh, the Valley mm-hmm. of Caves, and you, and you study prehistoric man, you know, human humanity <laughs> living in the land of Israel. And they didn't have writing. And and then and then you know it's are those people the ancestors of us living in the land of Israel now? Are they related to us? Are they not? You know, it's a very. I saw a picture of a, of what a caveman probably looked like at yeah, the Smithsonian once. It kind of looked like me. Yeah, I gotta say, back when I had like the long hair. Maybe. The <laughs> when did when did Hebrew come onto the come onto the scene? So um, we have writing in Mesopotamia. We have writing in Egypt. Um, the first uh, the first writing was not alphabetic writing. It was uh, pictures. People just make pictures, right? Mm. And each picture symbolized a word. And by such way, you could, uh, you know, learn several thousands of pictures. And uh, by defining a standard, how, for instance, you... Uh, make a picture of a house, or you make a picture of a bird, or you make a picture of a person, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You'll be able to read, and you'll be able to write. So you'll be able to uh, tra- transfer information. Now, the interesting thing is that probably our ancestors inv- invited the alphabetic writing, and uh, that happened uh, probably in our region. The earliest alphabetic writing is known from the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, the story was, at least uh, what we assume, right? Because uh, the problem is that we don't have uh, Josephus to describe us about it. It's much right. uh, earlier period, so we have much less sources. And uh, the story is that there was a place uh, that today we call it Sarabit al-Khadem. It was probably an Egyptian temple, and they had probably or Canaanite slaves or Canaanite workers that were employed in that area in a quarry. And they, the story is that they saw the Egyptians using their hieroglyphs, the pictographic writing, the ones that you, for each word, you have a picture. And they, of course, in the pictographic writing, it's really, really, really difficult to have this ability of read and write because you need to invest a lot of time in actually studying all these pictures. And they, that's why in Egyptian society, 
only the elites, only the priests could do the writing. Now, the Canaanites, this simple problem, a very low social status people that were employed in that quarry and the temple, they adapted the Egyptian writing in a different way. For instance, uh, if there is a, a picture of head, right? They would use it in order to symbolize the first sound of the word head. So the word head is a uh, rosh, and they would use it in order to symbolize the sound r. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Uh, or very similar to that, uh, if you write, um, let's say, um, um, an eye, right? If you create a, a picture of an eye, that's where I'm the Canaanites would say that would stand for the first letter of that word, which is ein. So when you want to use the sound, you don't have it in English, but in Hebrew we say ah, right? Right. You, you would put an eye, a picture of an eye. And by defining a, that each picture symbolizes not a word, but a sound, you can decrease the number of symbols you use in order to write. Yeah. So you can downgrade it to, let's say, 30 symbols, 25 symbols, and studying 20 or 30 symbols, that is a job that everyone can do. Right. You don't need to be a priest and dedicate your life in order to memorize all the symbols. Now, I'm sure that this is a process that took place over time and many people contributed to it, but could you imagine if it was two, just one guy? Two afternoons. They, they yeah, it was like one guy sitting there was like, holy shit. I bet, I bet there's a, like a sketch on like a Hayyudim Baim, you know, like we're, we're, uh, I took Japanese for a while uh, in high school and in Japanese, they use the Chinese characters uh, kanji and there's literally thousands so there's like 4,000 of them and I remember my teacher at one point told me they they also have a phonetic alphabet they actually have two phonetic alphabets and then the the character alphabet and they said you need you need something around a high school education just to be able to read a newspaper in Japan because, oh, yeah, yeah. because it that's how long it takes to learn that many characters well wow. you know to get to get to the level of over a thousand characters is that when you stopped learning Japanese I took four years, four years of high school Japanese. <laughs> like, uh -uh. I took four years of high school Japanese, and I was I was quite good at it, but I didn't want to do anything with that beyond. And so I switched. When I switched to Arabic, you know, I had just yeah. nothing to do with it, and I you needed less letters. Almost everything. <laughs> but I want to get back to to um, something. You know, at what point, and maybe it's with this period that you studied with the um, the the Palestine Exploration Fund. At what point did modern societies start approaching archaeology or just the concept of uncovering the past and trying to understand it in a scientific method, how new is that? Or, or is that something that societies have always done, the, the very concept of archaeology? I mean, were people in the Second Temple period or were people in the Roman period trying to uncover what had happened a 100 or a 1,000 or 5,000 or 500 years earlier? Or is this a relatively new thing in, in human society? 
So I would say that a scientific way approach to it, it's quite new. It's uh, at least in our region, it's 19th century. And uh, of course, there was a lot of interest in our region and particularly in Jerusalem because of the religion, because of the Bible. And uh, a lot of different European nations sent their scholars in order to explore the uh, antiquity of the Holy Land. And of course, it was all done in, I would say, kind of um, emphasis on, hey, we have the Bible, we have the core of our beliefs. Let's try to understand how much of what we believe is truth and how much of, of it is a myth. So who were the first and people to, to start doing that? Excuse me? Who were the first people to start doing that in an organized way? So, um, I would say that in 19th century, you have a lot of, uh, maybe in even 18th century, you have a lot of uh, biblical criticism that develops in Europe. And uh, people start to, uh, scholars start to war, uh, look on the Bible as a historical source and say, hey, um, the same person who wrote the autonomy wrote also the book of Kings, but, uh, or maybe the same group, but they did not re- uh, write Leviticus. Um, and they started uh, the scholars started to discuss what were the reasons behind writing these sources. Now, when archaeology came to the picture in the 19th century, um, it was uh, seen as kind of judgment day weapon in order to prove the Bible. What, what do you and, mean? What uh, do you mean by that? It means that it means that um, let's let, let's put it this way. Um, while you discuss on biblical criticism and uh, you say, okay, we have the book of Deuteronomy and they have, uh, so uh, the book has several la- layers and uh, we can discuss uh, uh, regarding the wording of the, uh, uh, of the text, what kind of words they use, what kind of, uh, um, I would say, um, Maybe sentences, how they form sentences. What does it, uh, what does it point out on the dating of the text and so on? Mm. But all that, as you can understand, is very theoretical. Now, the biggest change was in 1869, because in 1869, totally by accident, a missionary that was sent to Jordan in to a Bedouin tribe, a German missionary guy named Klein, um, who wanted to assist Bedouins with um, uh, providing medical care to them. They, uh, the Bedouins were very uh, grateful to that person and they showed him a huge stone with uh, about 33, if I remember correctly, lines of biblical texts or more correctly, not biblical texts, excuse me, of uh, lines of um, ancient texts written in ancient uh, Moabitic language, which is very similar to ancient Hebrew. Okay. And it correlates to the story told in Book of Kings about uh, a Moabit king, Mesha, who um, made, um, I would say, a revolt against Israelite King uh, Ahav or Omri and um, uh, the Omri dynasty. How did he know what he was looking at? 
Excuse me? How did he even know what he was looking at? Well, so he copied it. And when he brought the copy to Jerusalem, that was a big deal. Because that was seen by everyone. Uh, the French scholars, the German scholars, the British scholars, as the proof that everybody was looking for the Bible. And of course, because in the 19th century, there was also a lot of politics all around the, who gets the most influence in Jerusalem, who gets the most influence in the Holy Land, who gets the most uh, influential exploration of the Holy Land. There was a big deal to acquire that stone. Mm. Where, where was the stone found again? It was found in Transjordan, okay. today's Jordan, the Kingdom of Jordan, and it's called the Mesha Stel. People who are uh, listening to this podcast and sitting in front of the uh, of the computer, just Google it, Mesha Stel. Now, that was the first external inscription from the biblical times, meaning dating to the uh, time of the... 8th uh, century, which is 8th, uh, ninth century, BC. which is generally first temple period. You're, you're talking BC, 8th century BC. Of course, of yeah, course. Yeah. Wait, let me, let, me, let me just be clear on something. <laughs> what, what they showed him was a primary source document that itself originated in that time period. It wasn't a a uh, religious book or something that was newer. It that was just in had the, the Moabitic language. Right. It was. It dated right. back to. Okay. I just want to exactly. be clear. Exactly. So this uh, it was a stone that uh, the Moabit king Mesha made a dedicatory inscription that he praises his god Kamosh for giving him victory in the battle, and on the way. The same Mesha mentions that he uh, defeated the king of uh, Israel. He mentions that there was a tribe named Gad that was in Transjordan. Which is, which is what the Bible says. Yeah. Excuse me? Which is what the Bible says. Exactly. And he, pay attention, he even mentions in that inscription the temple for a deity named Yud Hey Vav Hey, which is the uh, the name of God in the Bible. Wow! Can we pull up a picture of this? Do, do of you course, have one handy, yeah. or should we Google it? Let, let me let me see. That, give give me a second. I will try yeah. to find it in a, one of my presentations. So, anyway, that was the biggest change in the approach of um, in, in the approach of uh, biblical archaeology uh, to the field. Because here you have something that you can hold, right? That you can touch and say, hey, this is an external source yeah. that testifies for the story that is told in the Bible. That's mind-blowing. And how yeah. long did that stay important? Like, how, how long between that discovery and the next big discoveries? Did that, did that create, like, a gold rush of researchers? Exactly. Let me Holy just say one second. Let me just find a, yeah, 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 the stone, as you asked me. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where is it now, by the way? Oh, so that uh -huh. is a quite big story. One second. Got it in my uh, basement. No. <laughs> yeah, well, well that, that is a, a really fascinating story because the moment that scholars hear that there is such a thing, everybody wanted to get it. I'm, su and, I'm surprised uh, it's not in the British Museum together with half of the 
you know <laughs> well you are very are close okay let me just say share my presentation one second so people who are listening yeah. to us on the or watching us on facebook live will be able to see it if you're watching you'll be able to see it if not we will have it in the show notes um for you to be able to okay to 1868 i was very close so this is the stone and uh, that is the a part of its uh, translation the story is that the moment that uh, scholars heard about it everybody wanted to get it and there was kind of rush in order to acquire that stell and bedouins were really upset uh, they did not really uh, care about the european scholars um and they they saw that some that everybody wants it so uh, they were probably querying between themselves uh, how to sell it or how much money to get it mm-hmm. also the turkish governor here that everybody wants it so he decided that he's going to confiscate it anyway the story was quite sad because what the bedouins did they decided that inside the stone probably there is gold if somebody if so many people <laughs> are interested in it so, so what they did they uh, throw it into fire waited until the stone became very hot and then put it in very cold water the pool very cold water on it so the stone shattered oh, in many pieces no. yep and uh, they were very disappointed there is no gold and uh, the Bedouins buried part of the stone in different uh, in different uh, <laughs> uh, 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 sides of the field and uh, it was believed that the stone is lost now until until there was a one uh, french scholar uh, who at that time was a a translator in the french consulate in jerusalem later he became a professor of semitic languages in i think in sorbonne anyway at that time he was quite young and uh, he was working in a um in the french consulate in jerusalem so he managed to bribe the bedouins and managed to buy most of the stones of the most of the parts of that stone huh. and he also had the copy that the missionary so he the german missionary it. made before and they what he did he assembled it together and what you see right now is the a is the artifact that is standing in the louver oh okay so that's yep. the assembled pieces of what he was able to salvage from exactly so this is, is it, this was done by clermont ganon and you can see that there are some original parts and there are some parts that are a yeah. kind of a oh, reconstruction yeah right? i'm right. assuming the, the blacker parts are the reconstructed parts exactly yes yeah wow now is this so, the oldest piece of writing that exists in the world? Or? No, no, no. This is the oldest as far as we know today. Well, maybe uh, No, no, it's not the oldest, but that was the first uh, the first discovery or that correlates with the Bible. The first inscription that correlates with the Bible. The first outside uh, verification of of biblical text. Exactly. See, he was. He says here, Omri was king of Israel, and oppressed Moab during many days, and so on. And Kamosh was angry. 
integrations and so on, so on, so on. And uh, you can compare it to a second book of Kings, uh, chapter three. And uh, it also mentions that Misha made the revolt against the Israelites. So, so, okay, so, so this actually brings up a really interesting point, and I think that we were talking about this before, which is to say that this person wrote this down in this stone. They found mm-hmm. that there were important events in their society, in their times, in, in the life of this king or of this person that they wanted to write down, and they most likely had others because they knew how to write, and they preserved their history, and, it, and, it, and it, you know, in one form or another, it, it was given on to other generations or other people, but... It was lost. It went into the ground, and 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 the Bedouins brought it back up in the 19th century and showed it to this to this person, and then it was lost again. And now it's just sitting in a museum, and that's and that's kind of the extent of it. Yet we have this other book, which is the Bible, and the, and 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 in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and you know, one could and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you could you could make the argument, which is to say that that was another book written by the people that were living here of the history as it took place from the perspective of the people who wrote the book down. And for whatever reasons it survived and, 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 and like kind of exploded into being, like you said, the bestseller of all time, which is to say that like, there's always that phrase that like history is defined by the victors or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how, how much that applies to this, but that preservation of different histories and different events and, and, and the perspectives of those events as, as written down by by whoever wrote it down, did survive. Whereas all of these other peoples around the land of Israel's did not. Uh, so what is? Are, what are, you, are you trying to ask like if I'm trying to take your thought and take it a few steps forward? Like why isn't you know half of humanity today worshiping the writings of the Moabites? Or is that like kind of where uh, you're going it, with it's it? It's not exactly where I'm going with it, but it's a part of it. Like we okay. said, that that's like an ancillary question. The, the question I I guess more is just like what would be your perspective on on, on what is the, the Bible in any sort of way more remarkable than other texts around it that, that would have been other of the Near same Eastern texts of the same Edgar. period? Why did it survive, and why are we here talking about it and not something else? Well, so first of all, just to emphasize, the stone does not have the text of the Bible, right? Of course not. It's not the text of the Bible. It's a the a inscription that the Moabite king left that is correlated or talking about the same event as the Bible, right? right. And uh, that, that puts me to the to answer to your question, because let, let, let's look on it today in 2022, right? Um, let's say today we have this event with Russia and Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. I guess that if you hear about these events from CNN, you get one side of the story, or one story, and if you get to listen to the Russian channels, you get a completely different side of the story, right? Presumably. Exactly. So that's true that uh, the text that you have in the New Testament tells you a certain story, and that story was written by certain people and then edited by different other people and it was preserved for a reason because we can consider it as a sacred text right, right. now is it um is it a mythical text probably not probably it is based on some kind of reality or at least part of it right but can we regard to to the text as a set of facts definitely not it has a perspective it has a narrative 
and uh, somebody has a reason why he wrote it. So as every historical source, we should look on it very accurately. And uh, in that regard, when you ask yourself, why do we talk today about the Bible and we don't talk, let's say, about the stories of, you know, of Gilgamesh, right? In right. Mesopotamia, right? Uh, the answer is that the Bible today is very important for a lot of people because of because it became a core of their values, because it became a core of their religious life. That is the reason why we're talking about it. And we're not talking about Gilgamesh, who is a very interesting case, very interesting story by itself, but it's not really connected to anything that is relevant for a core values of us today for, or I would say for daily life of people that cherish their uh, spiritual life today in 2022. Are, are there other such artifacts that externally corroborate biblical text? I mean, how many such artifacts are there? Okay, so first of all, let's let's define what is biblical text, right? Yeah. Um, I, I guess uh, what you are speaking about are the texts of the of the Old Testament, right? Of the Hebrew Testament, meaning. Uh, and let's go. Let's open up the New Testament also. I'm I'm just curious, like how many how many such external corroborations do you do you do we know of, give or take? Okay. I mean, obviously today. So, so I don't have a number, right? Sure. I, I would say is, is it like ten or like a thousand? Like that's what I'm I'm trying to get. Um, at. I, I would say I would say in general that in when you go to more ancient times, you have less texts, and mm. uh, when you go to a classical times, which is when you get to the New Testament, right, Roman sure. period, you have more texts. And of course, the most famous texts are the Qumran library, which is right. all a collection of scriptures that was kept by communities that lived near the Dead Sea. And they had their own a worldview, very different from other parts of Judaism. And a, without reading these texts, we would probably know very little about these people, right? And, now, we're talking about the Essenes, right? Oh, wow. Now here you're getting to a big question. Okay. Uh, you know, they, didn't, they did not call themselves Essenes. Kata, uh, kat, what do they call it? Kata Yachad? Kata Yachad? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yachad, Yachad. yachad. Com- community together, right? And they had a very, very, very radical worldview. But just to, that's kind of bracket, just get back to the topic. Um when you get to my periods, which is, uh, let's say, second century before Common Era and uh, f- until first century of Common Era, second century of Common Era, you have a lot of texts, perhaps not as much as we would like to have, but you have much more than in comparison you have about uh, the ninth century before Common Era. So one of the big questions you asked me, you started the whole discussion then by asking me what do I think about uh, uh, the stories of uh, of the Bible, right? Mm. The one of the biggest debates today, and I'm very happy that I'm not part of the debate because um, I'm not in that period, is uh, regarding the credibility of the stories uh, of Book of Kings regarding a book of King Samuel regarding David and Solomon, right? Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting Right, one. did they exist? Yeah, exactly. 
whether did they exist, so-called definitely today we have a, a proof that they exist, they existed, but whether they were big kings, heads of an empire, Solomon is described as a, as a huge ruler that Queen of Saba came to him and everybody admired him and there was no limit to his wealth. And on the other hand, when you get to archaeology, David and Solomon are dated to the 10th century before common era, and you have very little findings from that period. What are they and looking definitely, for? Definitely, you would, almost don't have writing from that period. I, I don't want to go off on a sidetrack too much, but like, what would they need to, to say, without a doubt, yeah, David existed? Like, so you, there was another inscription that was found in, in a Tel Dan in the north, in a, it was found in secondary use, and that inscription, a, it, it dates about 150 years after David, but it mentions a king of House of David. Mm. So if 150 years after King David, somebody mentions House of David, it means that there was such kind of person. Have you, have you ever read... Um... Uh, Malachim Gimel. I hear about it, but it's fiction. It's fiction. Yeah, of course it's fiction. It's just, um, I, I, it's uh, the, the third book of Kings. It's a fictional book by Yochim Brandis. I read it and it blew my mind to the possibility that it might be partially true. <laughs> and I still can't, like, every time now I hear about David and Solomon, I can't get the concept out of my mind. Um, we actually had the guy who translated into English on the show, um, if you remember Dan Liebenson. Of course. But it, it talked about the concept that you said, you know, uh, history is written by the victors. And um, it, it's a counter-narrative to, to Saul's daughter, who married David, and the whole story from her perspective. And um, that, you know... David was not the hero that everyone talked about, and Solomon was this like, you know, skis bag, lazy, whatever type of king, and you know, it's just kind of like a counter narrative to the whole thing. And I'm not, I'm certainly not well versed enough in in those books of uh, Tanakh to to have any kind of formed opinion on it. But but, but uh, then the same thing you can apply to the things that I work on. Okay. For instance, the first Roman Jewish war. You have Josephus who writes from certain point of view. The point of view that Josephus writes is that he is part of the imperial family, that he sits in Rome in the court of uh, Vespasianus, Vespasian, and uh, under his auspices, under the auspices of his son, later also emperor, uh, Titus, and write the story of the Roman Jewish war. So we have the story from that point of view. We don't have the story from the point of view of, uh, let's say, John of Jishala or of uh, a Simon Bargiora, right. the leaders of the revolt. Of the revolt. So, so we don't have any texts or anything about that time period from a Jewish perspective? We don't have an elaborative uh, description. How strange is that that we don't? Quite normal. It's, it's actually abnormal that we have Josephus. It's abnormal and- that we have Josephus. Yeah, well, uh, let's go 60 years after it, right? Okay. 60 years after it, there was a huge revolt. 
And we know that it, that revolt was much bigger than the first revolt. This is the Bar Kokhba uh, rebellion? Bar Kokhba revolt, exactly. And uh, there was no Josephus. There was no somebody as Josephus who would write the story of that revolt. So what we have about that revolt is uh, a few uh, paragraphs in Roman historians uh, that wrote Roman historians uh, a few decades or maybe centuries later. And that's it. Let me ask you this. Is it that we don't have it because it was never written or because it didn't survive? That's a great story. That's a great question. We don't have an answer. It's a, yeah, you no, can't know. How can you know? I, you couldn't know, but it's interesting to me because if you think about us, and I'm always trying to compare us to our ancient ancestors, we write down everything. We know, overwrite down. We whoever, overwrite. whoever finds Facebook, you know, like a thousand oh, years that from guy's, now is going to know. They're like, all <laughs> they're messed up. It's, it's going to be, no one's going to know what the hell happened here. Yeah. But like, everything's written down. And you can't imagine there would be a historical event in the 21st century that wouldn't have, forget about one person writing it down, but like the perspective of, of, of everybody that was there and everybody that listened to it and their opinions about it. And like, there's so much of a record. And, and, and when I look back at the people that were in, let's say the Bar Kochla revolt or in, or in, or in the Jewish war, it's, it's just like, it's, I almost feel disappointed. Like these monumental events happened in your life and either nobody cared to write it down or, or it was lost or it was lost which is i guess less disappointing if it was just lost and nobody you know but the, but the, the 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 feeling of maybe no one really thought to write it down that they were either and i'm not going to blame them i mean, well, I'm I sure mean they were in the middle joke. of a dramatic event <laughs> they they were too busy to write it down but it's just like wow that's a bummer it, it, josephus josephus wrote of his own initiative or or was he forced to write or i mean why do you have a Josephus, but you don't have other Josephus? Okay, so first of all, first of all, the fact that we have Josephus today is a, I would say, mainly due to the Christian Church. The Christian Church in the Middle Ages uh, and in the Byzantine period wanted to preserve the writing of Josephus simply because it serves certain as, as a center of narrative, mm. because that was the time that Jesus appeared, that was the time that was very important for the church fathers. And uh, when Josephus writes about it, uh, that was something that they would like to preserve, right? Now, on the other hand, uh, there are many other authors who wrote and nobody cared to uh, copy their scriptures, uh, to, uh, let's say, uh, preserve it, to save it for the later generations, and they're lost. Or maybe it's locked in the secret archives of the Vatican because it contradicts the official narrative. Well, allow <laughs> 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 me not to comment on that. But uh, well, Together with are, you actually touched a very interesting story. Uh, the story is that uh, something that we do with uh, students in introductory courses, um, there is a, an article uh, named The Legend of Emperor Kennedy. And uh, it's a, an interesting, uh, a, I would say, exercise that uh, they do in a imaginary world that happens 1,000 years after our time, after a huge catastrophe, that they try to, on, on a, an academic conference, to um, put together the pieces of uh, what really happened in our time with uh, a person named Kennedy, uh, 
by reconstructing that history based on a chapter in in, in one book and a, a what was that and an episode in uh, in one series and uh, a, a magazine uh, that has nothing to do with politics right. and they put it all together and uh, that's quite funny how they managed to assemble it and they don't really understand what was actually going on right on how the emperor kennedy ruled a huge empire <laughs> named america or they kind of confused whether America and the United States is the same empire. So um, what we are doing right now is exactly what the historians are doing in their historical research. They're trying to put the pieces together. Yeah. And uh, because we don't have a certain answer for many questions, a lot of it is based on scholarly uh, speculations. Yeah, conjecture. I mean, what else can you do? Um, exactly. And that's why history and also archaeology is part of humanities and not of exact sciences. Sure. Because sometimes we don't have an exact answer. I, I got to ask you, I, I want to kind of take a dive into the, you, you studied the Roman, the Jewish Roman revolt, right? I mean, that's part of your your ear. Which one, both of them or or which one? So, so I focus on the first revolt, but uh, also a bit on the second. The, the first one has to do with the destruction of the the temple, correct? Exactly. Year what, seventy. What you know, we have we have um, you know, kind of something that both Benny and I enjoy doing um, with this platform and the show, especially when we have guests like yourself who are um, historians, archaeologists, uh, academics in, in that sense, is is try to get an try to understand the myth versus the reality. Can you take us a little bit into, for example, that, uh, I, I say episode, but it's really one of the most seminal moments in all of Jewish history, the destruction of the temple um, the, and the revolt against the Romans. What do we, how do we approach it today from a modern Jewish religious cultural perspective versus, you know, kind of what are some of the the things in in historical research that don't line up with what we think of today. Wow! Yeah, wow. that's a huge question. <laughs> we, we we like small, easy questions here. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I don't know if you have like a few things that stand out that said, you know, here in Israel or here, you know, Jews around the world believe ABC. The revolt was because of this and that and this. But in actuality, we know that whatever, whatever, whatever. I think there is one line, one motive that uh, we can apply to the to to the events of year seventy of the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem. We can apply it also today to modern Israel, and uh, I think that motive is that Jews believe that we are kind of the most important part of the world, and everything should happen here, and everything what happens in the world is around us, and we still do. And, uh, and the truth is that that's not the case. <laughs> Probably not today and definitely not in the past. Although with the amount of news coverage and, and how many, you know, uh, news channels have, have full-time people here, you maybe you could make that argument at least today that it's the case. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I, I do a few uh, lecturing uh, opportunities and um, a... I have a lecture on uh, Roman politics behind the scenes of destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, I'm, I'm curious about this. 
Yeah, so, so, so the story is that a destruction of Jerusalem was not, I would say, the biggest uh, aim of the Roman Empire. And uh, when you look on the revolt, on the, you look on the uh, events that brought to the uh, destruction, you see that Romans don't really care about that province called Judea. Mm. It's kind of you know remote area. It's far away from Rome. Uh, yeah, it's it's a big. Excuse me for my language, pain in ass mm. that uh, Jews are revolting there, but it's not the main concern of the of the emperor. What would the have, what, what, what would have been the main concerns at that time? What would have been the top? I don't know three, four things that actually concerned the Roman Empire at the time. Well, so um, year sixty. Six when the revolt starts, right? That is the time that you have uh, a Emperor Nero, who you know is considered as a kind of a mad emperor. Is he, he goes out of his mind during the next years? Then, year sixty nine, you have in Rome what we call the year of four emperors when Nero was uh, put down from his throne and uh, a few generals tried to get on top of, uh, of, of the throne in Rome and become emperors. And uh, the most important value from Romans for Romans was the stability. The stability was in danger. And, uh, you know, Romans did not at that point in year 69, they did not really care about that remote province called Judea that revolted. What, it was not the main concern. Why? I guess my next question is, I don't know if you finished your thought, but my next question is, so why did, from a Roman perspective or from a historical perspective, what brought about the revolt? What brought the revolt or what uh, uh, what brought to the crash of the revolt? Both. Not the same thing. Both. Okay, so when we get to the revolt, um, when we get to the revolt, there were a few events that happened that deteriorated the relations between Romans and Jews, and the uh, Jews and non-Jewish population here in the land of Israel. And uh, we should get back to the to the story of King De- King Herod, that uh, was very influential king, very influential Jewish king that ruled the country. And after he passed away, year four before Common Era, um, his sons did not manage to rule the country successfully. And it was also the general Roman politics that uh, um, replaced the local rulers with uh, Roman procurators in different provinces. So we have a Roman procurator that is sent to become the governor of Judea. I mean, and that procurator is not familiar with the Jewish culture. He's not familiar with the uh, concept of monotheism. He's not familiar with the religion. He's not familiar with uh, um, what are the tensions here, right? Mm. And they also, we know that because Judea was not considered as an important place, they sent here the lowest ranks of the Roman governors, mm. people who did not have a career in public service, but were kind of 
friends of the emperor, people that, you know, what, what we call today in Israeli politics, uh, wanted to get jobs. How, can I stop you for a second, David? How, how uh, normal is it that the person that Rome sends to a province knows about the culture and the people of the province of which he is to rule over? Yeah, I mean, how, how professional would they have been in that? regard in, in a more important province? Let's I, I think that the, the question is, uh, is unfair. Mm. Uh, unfair, unfair for Romans. Okay. Because um, you can get to Syria and not understand the local culture because that local culture is very similar to your, uh, your Roman worldview, right? The Hellenistic culture. You can get to Egypt. You can get to Asia Minor. And I'm saying that that question is unfair when you speak about Judea because Jews were unique. They had a very different worldview and they, they had very different spiritual view. It would have been and that unique in the in that landscape of that time period? Exactly. Really? Okay. Very unique. And the Romans did not understand that there was a problem. Huh. And the fact is that a, they did not put a considerable force here in the province. Um, the fact is that after the revolt, they did put a legion here. It are, was not before the revolt. Are, are, so they didn't really see that this, pro, uh, this province is a troublemaker. And they, they were quite surprised when the event deteriorated. I have to ask because you, you said that 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 the Jews were very unique in the, you know, from the from the viewpoint of the the civilizations surrounding us, the cultures surrounding us, is that uniqueness solely derived from from monotheism? From monotheism, and in general, from the, uh, from everything that when you speak about Judaism or Judaisms at that time, you have right. you speak about plural Judaism. Um, which is very different from the Hellenistic culture, very different from the pagan culture. I'll give you one example. Um, for instance, when you speak about uh, the Jewish society, there was a whole big thing here that is connected to purity. It's something that is uh, very, very, very different from uh, what people would do in Rome, right? Ritual purity, how you would keep ritual purity, how uh, there was, there was um, even a group probably that tried to keep a very pure life uh, by keeping all the um, laws, religious laws of purity by actually self-isolating themselves from people who did not keep such laws of purity, other Jews. Now, all that was completely strange and I would say ununderstandable to Romans, but Romans did not understand even the basics. Think about it. In the Roman world, you have many temples, right? If uh, there is one temple to J Jupiter and uh, too many people are attending it, you build another temple. And then you have two temples to, Jude to, to Jupiter, right? Right. In Judaism, you cannot do that. A temple, at the, at the time, at least, right? <laughs> Ex yeah. But, but, but as, when I say temple, 
Right. Very different from the synagogue of today, right? Sure. Temple is the place of sacrifice. It's the place where you have the Shekhinah, right. the, the, the heavenly presence, presence of God, right. right? And that can be, officially at least, only in one place, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, on that particular <laughs> place that Halakha, the religious law, defines that the temple should stand up to, to, I would say, a meter, right? That is something that you don't have, that concept you don't have in a Roman world. And they, you also have the pilgrimage, people going from all around the Roman Empire. By the way, not only Roman Empire, people, Jewish people going from Babylon, going from uh, Egypt, from uh, all areas where you have Jewish diaspora, for pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That kind of concept you don't have almost in the pagan world. There's no concept of one specific place that is holier than other places in the pagan world? Of a single place, yes. You don't have such thing. Hmm. For instance, in Roman uh, in Roman religion, the, uh, the Capitolium is a very important place, right? Because that is kind of the most important temple in Rome, the whole... Uh, historical narrative of Roman society is connected to it, right? But it's not a single temple. You can have many other temples also to the uh, gods of uh, that are represented in Capitolium. In Jewish world, you have only one temple. So if you are in, let's say, in Rome, you cannot have a temple there. If you are in Babylon, you can't have a temple there. Did that bother the Romans? Yes, in, it, in some way. So, for instance, very interesting, uh, 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 very, very interesting source speaking about uh, a Jewish pilgrimage is a Roman orator a, and a former consul and senator named Cicero. And uh, what was his he name? Cicero. Cicero. Would that be in English Cicero? The, yes, the same but one? He, okay. was, uh, he was a Roman. So no, no, should, I'm, I'm just trying to... read it in Latin, right? Uh, so yeah, no, no, no. C in Roman is key. Key, okay. So I didn't know that, first Kikero. of all. And and so for our, our English-speaking audience, uh, we're, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. Yeah, they okay. should also, the English-speaking audience should do better and learn some Latin. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so Kikera has a, you know, a, he wrote his speeches and that's a, that's how we have a lot of information about his class, his clients that he presented. He was a, also an advocate, right? Okay. And he and he tried to defend his his clients. And one of the clients that he tried to defend was a, a guy named Flacos, who was the Roman governor of Asia Asia Minor, who confiscated the Jewish gold sent to Jerusalem which was the, probably the uh, tribute of half shekel mm. a donation that was sent annually to the temple. Right. And uh, he says in the defense, he speaks in front of the in front of the Roman elite of the Senate or wherever it be, and he says uh, an, an honest person, excuse me, an honorable person would defend such kind of actions because this gold is a barbarous superstition. They thought they thought the the Jewish religion was a barbarian 
religion compared to theirs? Yeah, well, in general, Romans thought that everyone is uh, is barbarous, except the Greeks, right? But uh, the Jewish religion was considered as one of the few recognized religions in the Roman world. Okay. Uh, it, It doesn't mean that Kikero cannot stand there in front of the Senate and say that the Jews are sending that gold as a superstition. And he also implies the same thing that Titus would say later to the rebels, that you used that gold in order to make war on us. Because we were so kind, we allowed you to uh, maintain these ties with your diaspora and collect gold gold in Jerusalem with our own money, as he defines as Titus, you used it in order to fight against us. Okay. Which probably has some truth to it. Well, it depends how you look on it, right? It's a matter of narrative, whether it's it's your gold or uh, whether it's Jewish gold or the problem was I say that the, the question is unfair unfair because you cannot expect a Roman governor to understand in the principles of Jewish religion especially when you speak about a governor who is appointed because he's just a friend of the emperor or he's liberated slave and mm-hmm. he got the job uh, and uh, he's not a public servant and he's not in a career of a public service so He's not very enhanced in his worldview, and uh, he's using his position simply in order to make things here be quiet and uh, on the way to get as much money as possible for Rome and put some of that money in his own pocket because that is the time that he's appointed in a position in order to uh, yeah. make living for the rest of his life. And this the same is the story get, you can apply is, on, on Pilate, right? The one who, uh, the Roman governor who sent Jesus to, to, to death, right? Who mm. condemned Jesus for crucifixion. This, uh, Jesus is brought to Pilate and they say, uh, we found this man subverting our nation and calling himself a Christ, meaning a king. Now, a Christ, which is a Greek word for Messiah. Yeah meaning the anointed one, the one that in right. the Jewish worldview, in the Jewish religion would be the one who will come and uh, the end of the days will start with the kingdom of heaven. Now, Pilate, he is a pagan Roman citizen, right? He doesn't know what is Messiah. He cannot understand the concept. Right. But the moment that he hears that Jesus is accused as being a king, that is... You know, he just crossed the red line. <laughs> exactly. You are against the emperor. And that's something that he can't tolerate. Mm. But I, I want to take a step back. So what would have been, we have? Okay. So you set up nicely this picture of a Roman empire that can't fathom the Jewish religion, which is unique in that time and seen as barbaric by them. Where, where, how does that lead to the revolt eventually? What, what is happening? What are like the major steps that, either Rome is taking against the Jews or the Jews are trying to take away from Rome that leads eventually to this revolt. So you should look on the events here from the local perspective. Mm. And again, I'm emphasizing it because uh, it was not the main concern of the emperor, right? The emperor was busy with a lot of other things. Uh, he was much more interested in Roman politics or what is uh, going in uh, provinces like Gaul, right? Uh, or what the Senate is doing. 
But on the local sphere, you have these uh, governors from the lower uh, ranks of the Roman aristocracy mm. that are not qualified for the job. And uh, from time to time, we hear from Josephus that they are trying to rob the money from the temple or they are crucifying people just because they got in their way. And of course, it raises the tensions, right? On the other hand, in, inside the Jewish society, you have radicalization. People uh, see that they lost their independence. They see that they are ruled by a pagan, a pagan society, like pagan governors, pagan, pagan army. They see that uh, things are getting really bad. They are in economic crisis. And they, they look for salvation in God. And that's how you see that uh, different layers of Jewish, Jewish society become more and more uh, radicalized, what we would call today radicalized, right? Believe in a kind of you know, eschatological uh, ending of the story. Mm -hmm. that there will be some kind of divine intervention. Right. So, of course, the, uh, the most famous example are uh, these guys from uh, Qumran, right? that uh, they split themselves from the Jewish society, from the main Jewish society, right? From the, uh, I'll say, ordinary Jewish society. And they, they go to the desert, even before the Romans, right? They do it uh, during the uh, Hasmonean time, during the, the independence, because they didn't, uh, they didn't agree with the Jewish elite in the time. And they believe that at certain time, because they are right and everybody is wrong, there is going to be a big war that they call it the war between sons of light and sons of darkness. Of course, themselves they see sons of light. Naturally. Some everybody else. Games of Thrones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and everybody else it would be sons of darkness. Of course. Now, that war is very bad for the sons of darkness because they're all going to be exterminated. Naturally. Is there a, has there been any kind of like anytime you have these kind of narratives about like light and darkness and this has anyone been like we're the sons of darkness and we're going to take on those sons of light and we're going to like no has there been ever that kind of counter you know spin on that like people claiming to be you know the dark side or whatever <laughs> well the, the motive of light that is something that's very very common sure. no i just gave a, a talk on hanukkah to a community in Canada through Zoom, and because uh, it's probably idea, it's dark there so so much of the winter that they just want anything with light involved. <laughs> so 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 it was a, it was connected between a, it was the time between Hanukkah and Christmas, mm. and what I tried to do in my talk is to emphasize the motive of light and darkness of both of these historical holidays, right? Hanukkah is considered as the time of light, right? Sure. When the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, who liberated the temple and started the rituals again, purified the temple, they brought the light. Yeah. Before that, there was darkness. Of course, the concept is a bit later, but the story is there. Now, when you look on the Christian perception of Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. When Jesus is born, he's seen as the light of the world. 
When the Magi are coming to Jerusalem, Matthew 2 and uh, Luke 2, right? Uh, they see the light. They see the stars that lead them. And uh, you can see it in the Christian art that they depict the nativity scene. And you can see that the baby, Jesus, is shining. He yeah. is the light of the world. So the concept is the same. Now, if it all seems to you very modern, I would like to take you back. And we spoke about the second revolt, right? So the second revolt was led by a person named Bar Kokhba. The son of the star. Son of the star, exactly. But wasn't that not his name? Wasn't that not his real name? Exactly. just the historiographical thing where we want to make him look better than... No, I think that was like his nickname at the time. So uh, that's how we have archaeology. Archaeologists did find his letters. Uh, Some of them were found in Judean caves in Mm. in the desert, right? Some of them were found in Herodium. And uh, we know from these letters that his real name was Bar Kuzba. That was his real name. But in the historical narratives, we hear the name Bar Kuzba, the son of star. And there is even a, a testimony in, a, in the biblical, excuse me, in the rabbinical literature that it says that Rabbi Akiva, mm-hmm the religious leader of their world, after he declared that the leader of the revolt is the Messiah, he named him Bar Kokhba. And pay attention, we're speaking about Bar Kokhba, meaning son of the star. Does it sound familiar? Sure. Star from the story of nativity, right? Mm -hmm. But it was not the only story. There were many stories of that time connected to the story of a star, some kind of star that would be appeared, uh, that will appear in the sky, and they would signal humans that uh, a new leader is coming, or a messiah is coming, or some kind of a change is coming. There was a very similar story told about Vespasian. Hmm. So it's all connected to the same roots. And the roots are that uh, light was seen as kind of the first step, the star, the first step of the divine intervention. This is also the basis of many ancient alien conspiracies. Mm-hmm. Oh, you love going there. Oh, I love it. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, just don't make a, that professor meme of historical channels thinking about aliens, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned... Um, the dynamic between Jews and non-Jews in Second Temple era Jerusalem, what would have been the, I guess, the demographic picture of Jerusalem at the time of the Second Temple? Who, who's living there other than Jews? Well, in Jerusalem? Yeah. Uh, in Jerusalem, it was many Jews. I, I'm not sure whether you had uh, non-Jews living in Jerusalem at that time. Probably you did have uh, Roman soldiers or uh, soldiers working for the Romans mm-hmm. uh, not def- not necessarily uh, Romans themselves, but perhaps uh, auxiliary forces that recruited from the local non-Jewish population mm. of the region and they stayed in Jerusalem. But residents of Jerusalem were at that time only Jews. Jerusalem was very, very, very religious city at that time. Um, it was the city of the temple. So it must be a different city in comparison to every other place. 
would it would it have been the city that is today within the old city walls would it have been extended beyond much beyond yeah how, well, how what are we talking about here um so the old city of today is uh the, the walls are from the turkish period right. uh, ottoman period which is uh, 16th century but uh, during the time of the second temple uh, i would say not the wall second temple because it's quite a long period but just before romans destroyed jerusalem in in year 70 um, jerusalem was probably at least two times bigger than the territory of today's old city huh two times bigger so like what neighborhoods are we talking about that would have been included in jerusalem of that time wow so it's um first of all it's debatable right sure uh, and it's very difficult to a picture it without uh, showing the map, but let's say let, let let's put it this way: probably the old city would be included inside uh, the, inside the walls, right? There were three different walls in Jerusalem just before almost destroyed it. Um, in the south, probably the area of Mount Zion would be included, and the the city of David would be included. In the north, uh, that's a bit debatable. Uh, some scholars believe that it was north, uh, up to north to the Damascus Gate, right? Mm. Which is the baseline of the uh, of the Turkish Wall. Others would say that uh, Jerusalem was bigger and that uh, the line would be around the area of um, today's um, uh, if uh, if you're familiar with a uh, garden tomb, right? Yeah. Sure. The beginning of Measharim. There is a, a there are remains of a wall that was discovered there, Lipa Sukenik and uh, Meyer. But uh, there are debates about it. Uh, indification. Some people say. So some scholars believe that. How did this... myself, that it's not really the wall of Jerusalem. How did the size of Second Temple era Jerusalem compare to other cities in the Roman Empire at that time? Also population, if you can, like, what, yeah, what kind yeah. of population? Okay. Okay, so, so let's start with population. Population is difficult. It's a difficult thing in archaeology. Uh, of course, if you go to the historical sources, you have uh, figures, but these figures are completely inf- in- incredible, right? Um, we spoke earlier that Josephus exaggerated, right? So mm. this is probably the most... Uh, um, the most known example of uh, how Josephus exaggerated figures, he claims that in Jerusalem during the uh, during the Roman siege there were about one million people. No, no, can't be. That's impossible. That's yeah. simply impossible. Uh, and uh, we think that he exaggerated simply in order to make things much more interesting for the Roman uh, for the Roman reader. Because if we are speaking about much smaller city, uh, the Roman reader will say, "Hey, well, where is the story?" Nah, he wanted to sell books. Why do I care? Right? <laughs> yeah, um, he's trying. He was trying to get it made into a Netflix uh, series. <laughs> well, indeed, 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 he he wrote a script. Uh, that's exactly what he did. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, so, so sorry for destroying the. A uh, miss, uh, 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 how we call it in, in English in Hebrew, we call parad doshot, right? The, yeah. Um, uh, well, how would you translate into English? Um, I have no idea. Taboos, not taboos. Um, taboos. Go- no, not taboos. I uh, say conceptions, right? Yeah. Popular conceptions. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, for instance, um, uh, the speeches that you have in Josephus, right? This, the famous speech that every birthright group hears on on Masada, where Elazar, son of Yair, right, the commander of the fortress, uh, convinces everyone to commit suicide, right? Right. There is no way that Josephus could get the original speech because everyone died. <laughs> Of course, yeah. and Josephus at that time wasn't wrong. <laughs> so what he did, he probably put in his mouth what he would have said. Exactly, and yeah. that was kind of a common practice among ancient historians. So Josephus was not different in that way. Interesting. We would say that um, Elazar's speech represents the spirit of what was said there, right? If there but, was anything said at all, probably, yeah. By the way, there are two speeches, right? Two speeches of uh, Elazar and Josephus. Right. But uh, and the same actually regarding the speech of uh, Titus or uh, any other characters that you can see there, right? But uh, the story, as a whole story, is kind of, I would say, uh, representing the events from certain perception. But we have nothing from Jewish writing about those events in that period that's what i'm saying I'm i know it can't be like I, I mean it's not the first time i've heard this is just it's hard to believe so you have a you have rabbinical literature rabbinical literature is a is not a a book of history right right it's a halacha book sure uh, not book books, right? Books. The, you're talking about the Mishnah, the beginning of the Mishnah. Mishnah and Tosefta, and later oh. uh, you have uh, Talmud, which is later, right? Which is much later uh, in, in Babylon, right? Yeah, Babylon. Well, you have also the local Talmud, which is Jerusalem Talmud, right? Right. Various, right. but uh, centuries later. But you don't have a person who would be as Josephus, whose aim was to elaborate the events. You do have rabbis who try to explain or even debate various religious questions and on the way they bring in their arguments certain events that happen but they did not sit down and describe the exact timeline of the events that was not their purpose do you find that strange no why would you find it strange that, I don't know, because uh, it's one of the most seminal moments in Jewish history when the temple is destroyed and everything is shifting over into rabbinic Judaism. You, you, but that's what we make of the event now. When it, when it was happening at that time, that's maybe it may 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 have been felt then as a seminal event to the people living there. But it may not have been. It, to put it in other words, it may very well be that after two thousand years, we put this thing on a major pedestal. Well, what what does the expert say? So I would say that uh, in general, uh, historiography, right, is not uh, something that uh, rabbis would do. That's not their purpose, right? And uh, again, we have the sources we have. Uh, back back then, would the Jews have considered, especially the Jews of Judea, but would they have considered it such a seminal moment in in Jewish existence as we look back on it today? Of course, definitely. Definitely. So uh, in comparison to that, right, you do have a historiography of the Hasman revolt, right? You have the first book of Maccabees and second right. book of Maccabees. Uh, one was written by uh, people who uh, 
lived in the uh, land of Israel. The other one was written for the community in, uh, in Egypt, right? And um, you do have the historical account, but uh, again, that historical account is, um, I would say, it's not uh, elaborative as much as Josephus describes. So it's not, um, it's, it's not written in the same way as, uh, as Josephus. And uh, I again take you forward to the second revolt that we don't have any accounts at all. We have just a few paragraphs of uh, Cassius Dio, and we have a few other paragraphs in uh, other ancient authors, and uh, we are very much walking in the darkness. So without archaeology, we would know very little about the second revolt. Today, due to archaeology, because we do have findings, we do have excavations, we do find the remains of people who uh, hid in the caves, we find the right. remains of rebels in Herodium, we find rebels of rebels in Batir, the, the place where the uh, Beitar fortress was. I saw, by uh, the way, you posted on your... Uh your Facebook page that you just did a tour of uh, the Herodian and, and different facts. Yeah, about- I, I have a tour of Herodium that uh, I developed uh, on, uh, it's called the Game of Thrones of Herod Great, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I have to say, I've never been there. Oh, also, awesome. you're, you're welcome. This Friday, this Friday. This on, Friday? Well, not, not Friday, it's going to be Tuesday. This Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday at uh, 10 o'clock, uh, you can find it on my Facebook page. Oh, and- yeah get listed and Thank it's you. in Hebrew. Anyway, so, so back to the story. Mm. Uh, today, because we have artifacts, because we have excavations, because we understand the story in special relation, right? We can conclude that the second revolt was much bigger than the first revolt. But not nevertheless, but not written about. It doesn't get played that way. Exactly. Because we did not have a big book written about it. So uh, uh, several decades ago, or maybe even several years ago, uh, people would speak about the first revolt as the great revolt. But today we know that the second revolt was much bigger in scale and uh, was much more disastrous in each uh, in, in its results. What, when you say was, when you say in scale, what what are we talking about? What is the scale of the first one? What is the scale of the second one? I mean that uh, in terms of uh, how much casualties did Jews uh, cause to the Romans, right? But we destroyed the we destroyed much more. We okay, excuse me, not not we. We you and us, in, yeah, <laughs> the three of Jews us <laughs> in the second century, led by Bar Kokhba, uh, destroyed much more Roman force and caused a real danger to the Roman peace in comparison to the I would say a modest uprising that was during the first. Roman Jewish war. And yet the first one warranted the destruction of the temple or going back to what you were saying that the Romans didn't really know or bother to care. They're like, okay, let's just destroy this thing that they think is important. Like, Or did the Romans realize what it is they were destroying? The Romans uh, probably realized probably that was part of their policy 
But on the other hand, we started to talk uh, about it uh, when we got to this topic. Uh, when I give my talks about Roman politics, you see that the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, was actually a need of the new dynasty that was established by Vespasian in order to get legitimacy in the Roman society. He needed a victory in order to show it to the Roman people. Mm. So we were kind of in the middle. The, the story of Jerusalem is much less the story of Jerusalem rather than the political needs of the new dynasty that started from their war. So what happens to the population living in Jerusalem after the destruction of Jerusalem? Do they stay? Um, are they, are they, I mean, there, there's kind of a popular narrative that, the, that the, after the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, uh, you know, the, the, the Jews were, were taken into exile and brought to different places in the Roman Empire or left and moved to the Galilee or, or there was some sort of a population uh, migration of some kind, uh, forced or otherwise, that took place. Is is that an accurate account of what happened, or or is it or is it more uh, organic than that, taking taking place over a longer period of time and, and as a result of economics and resources? I think it's and, very oversimplifying it. Yeah. Um, so definitely, there were a lot of people who were sold uh, who were sold to slavery, right? Right. And uh, many people perished. Uh, we do have actually archaeological evidence uh, for uh, Jewish slaves in Italy, in Italy. Uh, near uh, yeah near Naples uh, near Naples. Uh, what, what, but sorry, just a quick back step. What would have been the general population of Judea at, at oh, that time period? I didn't answer your question about the uh, population of Jerusalem, right? Yeah. So uh, I say that uh, Josephus uh, claims one million, which is uh, unreasonable. A today archaeological estimations are about um, pay attention 20 25,000 people in that's Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, that, and in all it. of Israel or Judea or whatever it would have been called. Do we know that's very difficult to answer? Um, I would say that something between several hundred thousands to a million. Okay, so out of all this population, how many are killed, sold into slavery in this first uprising? We cannot answer that. You, can't, you don't know. We can't answer that. It's something that's simply impossible by the tools that we have. But you would say, a, I would say one thing, that in a, the first world, you have a, a lot of people who were killed, but... Jews are still the dominant population of the Holland. After the Second Revolt, Jews became a minority in the Holland. Interesting. Who takes their place? Uh, well, it's not who takes their place. There are always uh, people who live here who are not Jews. Right. But who there becomes the who becomes population. the majority is, is my question. So, so you have a, a huge population of uh, a non-Jews, um, Greek-speaking population, uh, different uh, citizens of police, of uh, yeah. city-states, right? Or uh, Roman colonies later. 
for instance, Caesarea, for instance, uh, well, after the Second Revolt, uh, Romans established uh, a colony on top of Jerusalem. Um, so you have all these people who are speaking Greek or uh, Roman soldiers that uh, finished their army service and got uh, land to settle after their army service. And you also have a big population of Samaritans. Okay. You, do you Mainly wanna, yeah. in Samaria, but not only. Do you, do you want to explain what that is for our, for our listeners? Who are Samaritans? Yes. Well, Samaritans are a group that has a, a religious worldview very similar to Judaism, but different in one key point. They believe that that uh, place where the temple should stand and the place that God chooses is not the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but Mount Gerizim near Nablus. And, and they still sacrifice today on, on that uh, site? Yeah, they do. so today it's a very small group, yeah. uh, about 1,000 people. They do have Passover sacrifices the same way as they used to have uh, oh, well, uh, yeah. Yeah, the ancient it's quite magnificent. Uh, I'm planning to go there on Passover, but uh, always it doesn't really. I work. went. I went once many years ago. It was pretty cool. Yeah, and it, uh, our listeners can uh, just Google it and get a a, a YouTube video of uh, Passover sacrifice of Samaritans. It's a uh, really spectacular, and also spectacular in the same way that it's a, an ancient ritual of several thousands of years old, 2,000 years old, maybe more, that is preserved and kept in the same way as it used to be. We, we can imagine maybe that's what the ancient Israelites would have looked like doing their... Exactly, yeah. yeah. Some, some way, of course, <laughs> some developments. Now, um, Samaritans, we hear about them. Um, first of all, uh, the authors uh, the of... Uh, uh, of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Testament, are very critical to them. They claim that these are the people who were brought by the Assyrians after the Assyrians took the Israelites to the exile. Mm. So they, they took the Israelites to exile, and in order to uh, populate the land, repopulate the land, they brought other peoples from Mesopotamia, and uh, these peoples settled on top of the Israelites. Uh, this is the biblical narrative. Okay. Uh, probably when the Assyrians took the, Isra the Israelite elite to the exile, they left most of the um, rural population in their own place. And uh, probably the Samaritans of the Second Temple period are the descendants of the same population. Of the Jews who would have lived there without Not their... just Israelites. Israelites. Ten tribes, right? Not, right, not right, 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 right. the descendants of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. So the other descendants of the other tribes. Exactly, yes. Who we... At least partial. Sure. Now, um, the hostilities between Jews and Samaritans started probably a, somewhere around the third century before Common Era. So there was always some kind of you know, a competition 
between uh, Jews and Samaritans uh, regarding the uh, who is right, who is wrong, where the temple should be, and so on. But we see that the biggest split was around third century and second century before Common Era, and probably when the during the Hasmonean revolt, things started to get really nasty, and Jews started to you know to respond violently to the Hellenistic population, right? Uh, the violence was applied also against Samaritans. Okay. And uh, according to historical sources, a Hasmonean dynasty destroyed their temple. The, the Samaritan temple. Exactly. Huh. Is there... And that was, that was the time when these two groups actually split completely. And from the time we see that they consider themselves not as part of one people, but different peoples. Is there anyone, this is like something that always fascinates me is the the split between the different tribes and, and what happened to them. And, you know, we, we look, we today we're, you know, we're the Jews, the descendants of the Judeans, Judean and Benjamin and some of the Cohens and Levites. But, you know, like the whole question of what happened to the other tribes and certainly back then what happened at that time period as you know, the United Kingdom fell apart. Who, who might be an interesting... Brexit. Huh? Brexit. Brexit. <laughs> who is... Do you, United do you know Kingdom, any, yeah. Kingdom fell apart. Do you know of any scholars who, 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 like, that's their time period that they look at of the... when the different tribes were still in their place and the different dynamics between the tribes? Yeah, sure, of course. That's a, a lot of people who work on Iron Age... That is their specialization. And of course, there are a lot of debates about it, you know, the, between the a Tel Aviv school of archaeology that are more minimalistic mm. and the agenda that is uh, set by uh, people like Professor Israel Finkerstein and Professor Odette Lifshitz and uh, Professor, uh, Professor David Usishkin, who basically say that, well, you know, David and Solomon were not so important, and uh, Ju- Judah was much less important than uh, the Kingdom of Israel. We'll on, to... on the other hand, you have people, uh, archaeologists from uh, other schools of archaeology, and may- mainly led by uh, archaeologists from uh, a Hebrew university who say, well, you know, uh, we cannot disregard completely the narrative of the uh, of the Book of Kings and mm. the Book of of Samuel. That uh, we can say that it's all a myth. Right. Uh, of course, there are some exaggerations in the Bible, but uh, you know, so there are some factual uh, basis on uh, on the biblical literature also. also. With- uh, we'd be happy to help you if you could help us uh, connect to some of these scholars. Uh, I'd, I'd sure, love to sure, like, dive into this. It's all, so it's all it's fascinating. Want minimalists or maximalists? So both. Let me, let, let, both. Me, let me ask you a question, and I'll kind of tie this uh, to, to some modern modern Jerusalem politics. It's famously noted that you cannot do any sort of archaeological excavations on the Temple Mount today. Uh, and and the reasons, of course, are are you know self-explanatory to people who are educated into the geopolitics of Jerusalem and of the land of Israel. Um, and and then of course there's the incident where where the walk through a bunch of uh, uh, dirt or, or or remains or you know basically excavated the largest mosque in the Temple Mount, and then you know they they took all of that uh, rubble which contained all kinds of potential artifacts and they moved it to. 
in Makatsurim and different places. And, and I, I guess the question for you is, as, as an archaeologist of the period, if you could do a full-scale excavation of the Temple Mount, what would you, what could you expect to find, and what might it teach us of the period? Oh wow, this would be amazing, but it's not happening in our time. No, at least until the Messiah will come, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, so on my uh, professional tours, uh, when I have two guides and students that uh, I show them around, and we discuss Temple Mount from an archaeological point of view. Um, we do try to find several hints that we have on the surface that can uh, help us to put some pieces in that puzzle in understanding what was there before, right? right. So um, I would very happy, you know, excavate there and try to find the, the foundations of structures that stood there before, right? Mm -hmm. Because one of the biggest open questions is where the temple stood mm. and uh, today we are not sure about it so if we would have excavation we'll be able to understand better how the things look like now the temple and the temple mount are i would say unique example in the and i'm not sure even how to define it in world archaeology in a world heritage but we know that it is absolutely important. We know we have detailed descriptions of the structures that stood on top. We have it from Josephus because he describes a lot of events that happened in the temple. And he also gives us a very detailed description of the temple. It's his uh, Jewish War Book 5 as kind of introduction to the battle. So the Roman audience will understand where the battles are happening. But we also have halachic literature, uh, mm. rabbinic literature, uh, for instance, tractat midot, just dimensions, that uh, describes us the different structures that stood on top, the buildings, the courtyards, the sacrificial altar, the gates, the stairs, everything, because the dimensions are important also from halachic perspective. When they are going to rebuild the temple, according to the worldview of the authors of Mishnah, they will need to know what were the exact dimensions. So we have some kind of a very weird document, which is a report of engineer, you may say, that went down and measure the structures, theoretically, right? Because probably it was written after the destruction, so the engineer couldn't do it. And it was preserved because it is very important from halachic perspective, from religious perspective. So we have this document, and uh, we have Josephus, and we have detailed descriptions, but unfortunately, we don't know where to apply it to the Temple Mount meaning we don't know where the structure stood and we don't know how to reconcile the differences between this between the sources because the sources are not always agreeing about everything you you can't you're not allowed to go under the temple mount today no there's no way to would not dig just to go under it and see there's no, no. way to get under no there? no no so um the less people who uh, the less scholars who made a significant research on the Temple Mount underground 
are scholars of the 19th century that I'm uh, working on their works. For instance, the, uh, the, the German guys that I mentioned, the German scholar, Konrad Schick, who is uh, 200 years old, right? Happy birthday. And, uh, the British scholars, Charles Wilson, Charles Warren, um, Conder, uh, all these uh, British officers, actually, is it, were is sent it, for archaeological excavations in Jerusalem. Is this something that the, it's the Islamic waqf that won't let anybody underneath? Exactly, yeah, because of the not, political... Not even to look, not even to look, not to dig, just exactly. to look. Yes, there's yes. this you great. There's great political upheaval every time there's even, you know, any sort of engineering that has to take place, even from a pure like safety perspective. If you have to fix a stone, if you have to build a, an access point to the Temple Mount, I remember. And David, you can sort of shed light on this. I mean, the whole thing with the Mugrabi Bridge of of trying to create a an actual structure that would bring people to the top of the Temple Mount from from the Western Wall Plaza is deeply contentious in the in the Muslim world. Of you know what are the Jews' true intentions of what are they doing with the Temple Mount and you know this is ongoing. Yes, so, so the Mograbi Gate is actually outside. Uh, the story is about uh, the structures yeah. outside, uh, outside the gate, outside the Temple Mount, right? And still, it makes a lot of uh, mm. of tension. And uh, since year two thousand, nobody who is not Muslim is even not allowed inside the structures on top of this Temple Mount. Meaning when you when I go and I take my students or I take the tour guides on professional tours, um, we just tour around. We cannot enter the Al-Aqsa Mosque. We can't enter the Dome of the Rock. I, I went in the year 2000 and I remember going in. So I guess I must have been... So before year or, 2000, or maybe 90. you would get on top, you would buy a ticket or from may, the back. Or maybe 98 I was in. there. I was there either ninety eight or two thousand, but I remember going in. So it's all your fault. It's all my fault. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. Well, uh, I was there actually in uh, two thousand eleven by special uh, special permit that a few scholars got mm. and a few experts got, but it was really unusual. Fascinating. Yeah, Fascinating. yeah. It's, uh, so, so what we have is actually the um, different uh, records from the 19th century. And that is what we are working on. For instance, uh, last week, there was an amazing opportunity to see a model that Conrad Chig made of the Temple Mount for the, for the Ottoman authorities in 1873. Mm. And he made a very precise model that uh, recorded the way how the Temple Mount looked like. They, the Ottomans presented it in their expo. In a, there was a, an expo in Vienna, and they presented in their own um, in their own part, and showing the showing Jerusalem. And the Conrad Sheik was sent in order to document the Temple Mount, and uh, um, he made the model very very precise, including the underground chapters, yeah, underground chambers. So, if you look on the model, you can take out different structures from the top and look what is there under them quite amazing i'm gonna i'm gonna look that up um because that, that was going to be my next question and i know your time is uh, running short and we need to wrap yeah. up here I, I, i've always just been curious like what's under there and, and you know uh i don't know i, I hope uh in, in still while you're in your career and in our lifetimes we can uh you know yeah, so, so what I'm doing with, uh, with these tours, so when we go on the Temple Mount, I take uh, the information from the 19th century, the 
the drawings, uh, the paintings that we have uh, of uh, different tunnels and uh, the books that we have that were written based on the archival materials from the 19th century. And we try to understand what is there under our feet. Fascinating. Um, David, if people want to follow you, if people want to invite you to lecture, if people want to do tours of Jerusalem with you, how can they contact you? How can they find you? Oh, wow. So, so, so that would be a great pleasure. And um, usually a lot of my work uh, these days is uh, based on uh, uh, in Hebrew, because we don't have tourists, but sure. uh, if if we have if we do have professional audience that is coming to Israel and interested in a, in a tour in English or a talk in English or it can be on Zoom, they can easily find me by um, entering my website, which is uh, israelincolor.com. Or um, for Hebrew audience, there is also a Facebook group. It's called Hartzaot uh, Vesirim, Dr. David Gurevich. And uh, every week we have uh, something happening, usually a tour or a lecture. And uh, I'll be very happy if people join. Yeah, of course. Fantastic. Terrific. We'll, we'll put all that up on the show notes as well so people can follow you, people can reach out to you. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I found I found this fascinating. I could easily sit with you. We uh, had so much more that we wanted to talk oh, yeah. about. We just got sucked into this deep dive because uh, it it's excellent. And we will schedule another session for uh, uh, about the uh, holy sites, about uh, the Christian part. Absolutely, and, uh, would be if you if you want to come back, we'd be glad to have you again. Absolutely, perfect. Thank you, guys. Thanks so David, much. You take care of yourself, and uh, we'll try our best to get that uh, th- those those tourists, those international tourists, back onto uh, onto the agenda. Wow, that would be great, yeah. All right. uh, Awesome. We will thank you, David Gorevich, Dr. David Gorevich, archaeologist, historian, lecturer, and uh, Benny, we'll see you uh, next time here on Juonst. All right. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Good night. Juonst is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, Visit us at juonst.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juonst.